I wish I had been recording when you said that. You want me to start now? I'm going to rock out with my cock out. <laughs> it just doesn't. And Billy Joel and Stevie Nicks. <laughs> everyone and welcome back to that's insane a podcast where i talk about murder medicine and maybe more but most definitely more because there's a lot of weird shit out there i'm aurelia i am your host and for today's episode i have a special guest let's say hello to my friend sammy hi everyone this episode is probably going to be a two-parter which is the first two-parter. Woo! 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 So I don't know when I want to post it. Like, I don't know when I want to post the second part. Like, but I'll figure that out. Disclaimer for all the episodes that I... For all the episodes I do, or the disclaimer I give on every episode, is that this is supposed to be a respectful retelling. It is supposed to just be about two friends chatting, me to you and me to my friend Sammy, about cases. I feel like the victim stories deserve to be told, but we want to do it in a respectful way. This episode has a trigger warning for rape, so if that is not something that you feel you will be able to listen to, then this episode might not be the one for you. And I encourage you to check out some of the other ones. And I guess with that, let's get started. Okay. This is the case of Amanda Knox. Okay. Have you ever, like, read or heard or watched anything about this? I remember during COVID, Clay and I, my roommate at the time, watched the documentary series. And granted, I'm pretty sure this happened when we were really young. So, uh, Kind of, yeah. Yeah. So I didn't know any of this. We were also drinking wine, COVID, yeah. you know. So... Some of it's a little blurry, and I'm hoping you can enlighten yeah. me a little bit more. So I, like, dove into this. It took me a long time, but I was like, holy shit, because this, yes, this happened in 2007. Okay, so I was, we were, like, 12, I was, 13. I was 13, but I remember when I was a freshman in college, I actually watched a documentary on, like, Netflix or something about it. Like, I have this very vivid memory of me walking through the SIUE gym Watching it, like, on my phone, I don't know. Oh, just enthralled you that much that you were like, girl, I couldn't put it down. I was watching The Secret Life of the American Teenager at the gym literally three months ago, so (laughs) it doesn't take that much. Yeah, (laughs) But I remember watching it and being like, "Mm, yeah, I don't know about this. And when I was doing this research, I was like, how did you ever think? You'll you'll see. So it's very fucked up. I'm excited. On November 2nd, 2007, 21-year-old Amanda Knox returned to the apartment she was sharing with a British exchange student, 21-year-old Meredith Kircher, and two Italian lawyer trainees that were in their late 20s. Their names were Filomena Romanelli and Lara Mazzetti. She found the door open and a small amount of blood in the bathroom. She showered, then went to a different bathroom to blow dry her hair, where she found unflushed feces in the toilet. She then noticed that Meredith's bedroom door was locked. So I guess, like, she tried to go in and be like, hey, what's up? I don't know. And then she became concerned, so she left to get her boyfriend, Rafael Solicito. Solicito? I didn't take Italian. I didn't either. I think it's Solicito. S-O-L-L-E-C-I-T-O. 
I'm not going to say no. I will refer to him as Raphael yeah, for the rest of it. I barely anyway. pass Spanish too, so Italian's not in my <laughs> okay. repertoire either. So she she had him come and try to knock the door down. After numerous failed attempts, a lot and a lot of damage to the door, Amanda called her mom to tell her the situation, and then her mom was like, "You need to call the police." So at 12:51 p.m., the police arrived, and Romanelli explained the situation to the police and requested that they break into Meredith's room, but the police declined. After Romanelli realized that Meredith's English phone had been dumped in the garden, so she had, like, two phones, because... And when they say English phone, I'm assuming, like, her actual phone? Yeah, like a phone for international calls, maybe? I, and then a phone for, like, yeah. in Italy that she got to That's what I'm wondering. Others. Anyway, when she realized that that had been dumped in the garden, she then requested that her male friend open the door. So the police didn't open the door. Her male friend did. At 1.15, Romanelli's friend busted Meredith's bedroom door down to find Meredith lying inside on the floor, partially clothed, covered by a duvet, and deceased from numerous knife wounds. So, Meredith Kircher was born on December 8th, 1985, in Southwark, South London, and was known to her friends as Mez. She lived in Coolsden, South London, and went to the Old Palace School, which sounds so fancy. She was very interested in the language and culture of Italy, and after going on a school exchange trip, she returned to the country at the age of 15 to spend the summer vacation with family. She studied European politics and Italian at the University of Leeds, and she wanted to work for the European Union um, or as a journalist. So she was, like, hardcore. Yeah. In October 2007, she attended the University of Perugia, which is in Italy, where she started courses in modern history, political theory, and the history of cinema. So Perugia, what I read, was, like, this smallish town. It was, like, known for, like, cultural stuff and, like, art stuff. But the, they all lived in Perugia and went to the University of Perugia. And she was mm-hmm. described by other students as caring, intelligent, witty, and popular. So November 1st was a public holiday in Italy. So the two Italian roommates were spending the night with their partners. And then there were also four Italian men who lived on the first floor that were also away for the long weekend. It's believed that after watching a movie at a friend's house, Meredith returned home around 9 p.m. and was alone in the apartment. Apparently, according to Amanda, when she returned to the apartment, she wasn't immediately alarmed by the door being open because it was known that the deadbolt didn't latch properly. Amanda said she went to shower in the bathroom and then she noticed some small bloodstains in the sink and on the bath mat. She said when she and Raphael returned, they noticed one of the bedroom windows was broken. It's so suspicious that all of it, and like granted, like we're all, we're both girls. I've shaved my legs just last week right. and cut but at the same time in the sink I don't remember yeah window? I don't remember how well I think when they returned and they saw the broken window oh the next time <clears throat> yeah. okay that makes sense now. and I think the broken window was on the roommate's side it wasn't mm-hmm. where like Meredith's bedroom was so I'm assuming it was and if you like look at the house like the photos it's like there's a road and then this is like the, it would be like the second floor is in line with the road like it it look it's very weird like setup. It's like almost built into the ground kind of. No, it's just that it's like down like a hill, but oh. it's right next to the road. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, so they noticed that one of the bedroom windows was broken, and then this is when she attempted to call Meredith without an answer. This concerned Amanda as it appears Meredith always answered or kept her phone on her persons. Meredith's wallet, keys, and cell phones had been removed from her purse, and the two phones actually were discovered in a nearby garden about a kilometer, kilometer, (laughs) (laughs) about a kilometer away from the apartment. This is when Amanda called Romanelli to express her concerns, 
and the detectives the detectives on the scene were Monica Napoleoni and Marco Chiachiera Chiachiera yeah that looks right Monica conducted the first interview with Amanda and questioned her about why she wasn't immediately alarmed. Amanda later reported that Monica was super harsh and hostile, and, um, or was super harsh and hostile with her right off the bat. Did we ever find out where Amanda, or did you say where Amanda was before she returned? We'll get into all we'll that. Get in. Okay, cool. I'm going to say that again because it probably sounded like I farted because I was moving. <laughs> we'll get into all that. Marco, who was the other, the other investigator, immediately discounted the claims by Raphael regarding the break-in, stating that they were clearly faked by the killer that the break-in was. Over the next few days, Amanda was interviewed numerous times, somewhat as a witness, apparently. She told police that on November 1st, she received a text from Lumumba, a a restaurant, stating that her waitressing shift had been canceled, so she stayed at Raphael's apartment. She states that she only went back to the apartment in the morning when the body was discovered. She wasn't provided with a lawyer or other legal counsel at the time of these interviews because in Italy... The law only mandates the appointment of a lawyer for someone suspected of a crime. I also read that Amanda wasn't provided with an interpreter, so she had limited and and she had limited knowledge of mm-hmm. like Italian language. So I can't imagine being like she's like twenty years old in a foreign country in a language you kind of understand, being interrogated by police. Yeah. In a system that you don't know. That's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I was in a car accident when I was nineteen and I was like, I have no clue what to do. If yeah. I was in a different country. Yeah. Like, I would have no and idea. Found what a to murder. One hundred percent. Now, on November fifth, Amanda voluntarily went to the police station. But what af- what happened after is highly disputed. Amanda, Raphael, and Patrick Lumumba, who is the restaurant owner, were all arrested on November sixth, two thousand seven. The charges against Lumumba were eventually like dropped shortly oh, okay. after. So... But they were arrested on November sixth. The restaurant owner. I'll tell you why. Okay. I'll, let's talk about Amanda. So Amanda was born on July 9th, 1987 in Seattle. She was the oldest of her family with two younger sisters. Her parents divorced when she was 10 years old, and she first traveled to Italy on a family vacation when she was 15 years old. After reading Under the Tuscan Sun, she became increasingly interested in the country. She graduated from Seattle Preparatory School in 2005 and studied linguistics at the University of Washington. She was working a part-time job to fund an academic year in Italy, but her stepfather was unsure of the trip because he felt like she was too naive. Oh. And she's she was she was 20, so she was very young. Which you know, when you're 20, you're like, I'm an adult. It, and yes. now I look back, I'm like, you could barely do your taxes. I'm still not an adult. I'm still <laughs> not either. an adult. I'm well, I'm 30 at the time that this will post. I'll be 28, and I don't even understand my insurance. So <laughs> I'm I'm okay. Let's talk about Raphael as well. So Raphael was born on March 26th, 1984, in. Giovinoza in southern Italy. He was the son of a successful urologist, and he was almost done with his computer science degree at Perugia University when he met Amanda at a classical music concert in October 2007. So he and Amanda had actually met and began like dating literally six days before this murder. So the autopsy and the burial. The <laughs> autopsy revealed that Meredith's injuries consisted of 16 bruises and seven cuts which I'm assuming are to be inferred as stabs. 
She had two major knife wounds to her neck. One was on the left of her neck and was eight centimeters deep, which is almost three inches. And the other one was on the right side of her neck and was four centimeters deep. So they had to be like on top of her. Yeah. They believed that more than one knife was used due to the the difference in the sizes of the wounds. And she also had bruising and cuts on the palms of her hand. The bruises were also noted to her nose, nostrils, mouth, and under her jaw, which was consistent with a hand being clamped over her mouth and nose. Three other pathologists reviewed the original pathologist's report and interpreted the injuries, including some to her genitals, as an attempt at immobilizing Meredith during an act of sexual violence. So she was being restrained, Mm -hmm. essentially. The pathologist concluded that it was likely more than one person participated in the murder due to the lack of significant defensive wounds. Meredith's funeral was on December 14, 2007 at Croydon Minister and more than 300 people attended. She then had a private burial at Mitcham Road Cemetery and she was posthumously awarded her degree in, on 2000, in 2009. That's beautiful. Yeah, I agree. The investigation, let's, let's jump back to that. So as we know, on November 5th, Amanda and Raphael, I'm sorry, um, November 6th, Amanda and Raphael were arrested and charged with murder. So what is the evidence that they're using to support this? When they arrested her and Raphael, they actually hadn't analyzed any of the forensic evidence, but they'd already, de- they'd already deemed that she and Raphael were the murderers. In one of the interrogations, up to 12 people interrogated Amanda, shouting at her and even hitting her. Allegedly. And she's 20 years old? Allegedly, Allegedly. Allegedly, my excuses. They threatened long prison sentences and never seeing her family again. And so exhausted and terrified, she ended up explaining what possibly could have happened at the cottage. And the police basically used this as a confession. And she, like also implicated her boss, Patrick Lumumba, in the killings. So that's how he, like, got tied into it. She was like, okay, I guess this is what happened. I want to talk about Italian criminal procedure, though. Okay. So they didn't even need a lawyer, though. Okay, we'll get into that. Uh, Let's talk about Italian criminal procedure because it's very... It's not very, but it's a little different. This was kind of interesting to read about. Mm -hmm. So obviously we hear all of this and we're like, what the fuck? Because we know that in America it's supposed to not be like that. So how does the criminal procedure work in Italy? In Italy, if someone is accused of any crime, they are also considered innocent until proven guilty, but the defendant can be held in detention. If the defendant opts for a fast-track trial, murder cases are heard by the Corte de Assises, or the Court of Assises, which has the jurisdiction to try the most serious crimes. So a guilty verdict is not definitive until the defendant has exhausted all the appeals processes, regardless of how many times the defendant is put on trial. So it like automatically goes to like a higher court each time. I found a really good article that highlights the differences between the U.S. court proceedings and the Italian court proceedings. So this is kind of how they're broken down. In Italy, a defendant doesn't have to take an oath to tell the truth. In the U.S., we have to take the oath before testifying, which I don't really get because is it ever really followed? No. Like, it's I, there, It's not. And then they're like, oh, like, is anybody ever actually charged with perjury? Like, whatever. So they don't have to take that oath. In Italy, criminal trials are only 
uh, only held before a panel of three judges instead of a jury. Hmm. So this panel is composed of a senior judge and two junior judges who are sometimes only a few years post-law school. In the U.S., most judges serve as lawyers for many years before being appointed or elected as a judge. Yeah. In Italy, for the more serious crimes involving a, quote, blood crime, so murder, Mm -hmm. the system does allow for a jury, but it's not a jury of 12 peers. In Italy, it's composed of two judges and six citizens, and one of the judges presides over the trial. So what does the other judge do? What do you mean? There's two judges? There's... I'm a... I guess they're just part of the jury, so they. I don't know if they pick like the oh, most senior judge to like oversee it that or makes whatever, because they choose like a random juror. I guess in the U.S. Right? Yes, to yeah. be like the head person. Yeah, so that's probably that judge that does that. Right, for like the, the foreman person. Yeah, yeah. I'm assuming we, we can only assume if the jury is not sequestered until deliberations, and verdicts don't have to be unanimous. It's only a simple majority that's for a conviction. The jury has to file an explanation of why they made their decision within 90 days of the verdict, and if a guilt verdict is reached, the convicted has an automatic right of appeal. So in the appellate court, again, there's three judges who hear the appeal, and it might include new evidence and testimony. So I don't totally know how <laughs> ours works, but I'm assuming, or I think, that when it's appealed, it's the same stuff. It's just different eyes. I could be wrong. But I don't think, unless a new trial is granted, that new information is like yeah. allowed. So, uh, so in the Amanda Knox case and for other more serious cases, the appellate court may have eight-member juries. But most important in my mind for this case is the difference that in Italy, there is no law against double jeopardy, meaning successive multiple prosecutions of the same person for the same crime is allowed in Italy. Wow. Post arrest and trial. Let's get back. Let's let's get back to that. Let's stop talking law school. I'm obviously... I got my degree in fashion. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah, and I work for an IT company. So riddle me that. Hashtag America. Okay. <laughs> Gosh. So after their arrest, there was a press conference held, and police incorrectly stated that they had evidence that Meredith was murdered due to her refusal to join in on a sex game. Oh, Lord. It's always something with sex. Why? I don't know where this came from, but I do remember from a documentary I watched like 10 years ago mm-hmm. that said, obviously, Italy is heavily Catholicized, so this information really just set the tone in defining Amanda and Raphael as these like sexual demons. Yeah, like deviant people. Yeah, like sex-crazed individuals. Oh. This obviously became a huge focus point in the media and was a large part of their unfair trial. The media also scrutinized the way Amanda and Raphael behaved following the murders, as, you know, even here we do that. Mm-hmm. For one, Amanda and Raphael were reported to have gone to the mall to buy lingerie, and supporters of Amanda later stated that she was literally buying underwear. Who knows, but we know how the media likes to edit that narrative. Yeah, and also her apartment's been compromised by a crime scene. Like, doesn't yeah. she need basic necessities? But is they're that- saying that she was there to buy lingerie. So, like, that's what was put out. I'll like, go to Walmart in Italy next time I get my granny panties instead of the mall. Sorry. Uh, they also noted that Amanda was doing cartwheels at the police station before being interviewed. But again, others would say that she was actually doing stretches and whatnot when the police, like, walked in. Regardless, the image of Amanda was already painted to the media and it wasn't great. 
the police hadn't even looked at the forensic evidence, like I said, to even be making these claims. They literally just went with their intuition. Uh, as the evidence was finally being analyzed and uncovered, it was clear that something wasn't correct about the police's version of events. The evidence that was collected, let's get into it. So on November 15th, almost 10 days after their arrest, a kitchen knife was reported to have been found at Raphael's home. The knife was eight inches and had traces of Meredith's DNA on the blade and Amanda's DNA on the handle. Raphael claimed that he had once accidentally pricked Meredith's finger on accident, I already said on accident, while they were cooking. Okay. Okay. Investigators examining the crime scene came across blood fingerprints that didn't belong to the women who lived in the apartment or Raphael. So right there, that should have been like... Big red flag. Yeah. Instead, it was discovered that these fingerprints and the DNA found on and in Meredith's body belonged to a man named Rudy Guade. Guade or Guade? I remember that name for some reason Mm. now. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to call him Rudy from here on out, but I think it's Guade or Guade. Rudy had actually fled Italy shortly after the murders, and he was apprehended on November 20th while trying to board a train near Germany without a ticket. Also, on November 20th, Patrick Lumumba is released from custody after his alibi is corroborated, and he ends up, like, later ends up suing Amanda for slander for implicating him in murder, which he does one. Because, like, I mean, I would too. I and he's that. a business owner, so he's like, the fuck, you know? Yeah. Okay, let's discuss Rudy Guade, or Guede. Rudy was born on December 26, 1986, in Abidjan, Ivory Coast, making him 20 years old at the time of the murder. There's a lot of young people in this story. They're all so very young. Sad. All very young. He uh, So Rudy had lived in Perugia since he was five years old, and he was raised with the help of school teachers, local priests, and others. In 2004, his dad returned to the Ivory Coast, and Rudy was adopted by a wealthy Perugian family at the age of 17. Uh, he played basketball for the Perugia youth team during the 2004-2005 season, and while playing uh, at a basketball court, he met a couple of men who lived on, who ended up like living on the lower level of Villa, I'm sorry, Via della Pergola 7, which is that apartment complex. Mm-hmm. Apparently, in mid-2007, his adoptive family asked him to leave their home, but I couldn't really find why. Some prior alleged crimes include that he allegedly committed break-ins, one of which he showed a pocket knife when he was confronted. On October 27, 2007, he was arrested in Milan after breaking into a nursery school and was found with an 11-inch knife that he'd taken from the school's kitchen. Apparently, 20 days before that, he had broken into the same nursery and stolen 2,000 euros, but that wasn't reported to the police. October 23rd, his neighbor, Maria Diaz, said she was attending a grape festival when police came and told her that her home had been badly damaged by a fire that had been set when someone entered the home through a window and threw a scarf over the lamp. The thief had also cooked a meal, tossed food all around the kitchen, left the stove on, and left the fridge open. And then her jewelry box was also looted. What an odd... Yeah. Uh, The only other weird thing about him, or like his past crimes or whatever, alleged crimes, was that uh, the guys who lived on the first floor that he had met at the basketball court said that his first visit to their home, they found Rudy sitting on the toilet asleep after pooping, (laughs) and apparently there was unflushed feces in the toilet. So this whole story... 
like unflushed feces is a thing. How did they connect this all to Rudy? They had the fingerprints and apparently Rudy had met both Amanda and Meredith before since they lived above his friends. He never really made any reference to Amanda or Raphael in any of his original original statements to police. So he never implicated them. He didn't say that they were there or anything. But instead of police just being like, oops, sorry, we're wrong. You guys must not have been there. My bad. They literally kept the same theory, but just replaced Rudy into Lumumba's place. So they continued to state that it was this weird group sexual thing. But he never talked about Amanda or Raphael. And they barely knew each other. And those two never even brought up? Rudy. No. Okay. Apparently, they found bloody shoe prints throughout the apartment that were consistent with a pair of Rudy's sneakers, two in the kitchen, two in the corridor, and one on Meredith's pillow, which was under her body, and seven in Meredith's room. Rudy admitted to having consensual sexual relationship with Meredith, which they always fucking do. That pisses me off. I agree. So much. He admitted to having these sexual relations with Meredith, but claims that another man killed her while he was in the bathroom. Oh, when he was pooping. When he was pooping. Yeah, okay, makes sense. 46 days after the murder, the police return to the crime scene, 46 days, and find Meredith's, Meredith's severed bra clasp under a pile of debris in her room. So it's literally just like that piece of metal with like the loops. Mm-hmm. And they found that in the room. And they conveniently were able to assert that Raphael's DNA is found on this bra clasp. So it supports their theory of this dangerous sexual game. 46 days later. 46 days later. conveniently found DNA. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and it also supported the defense in their accusations of a sloppy investigation and a contaminated crime scene. Oh, that makes me so angry. Yeah. It's a mess from the beginning, but I think we're going to stop there for oh. this episode. <laughs> cliffhanger for sure cliffhanger so in the next episode we're going to get into the trial and the the response to the trial and everything like that i'm excited i want to know more now i'm gonna go watch the no i i'll wait for the documentary after it's it's really uh, this case pisses me off to no extent but anyway look out for the second part to the amanda knox case Don't spoil it for yourself. Let me tell you the story. I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. As always, follow me on Instagram at that's insane underscore pod. On TikTok at that's underscore insane underscore podcast. If you have any crazy medical stories, crazy true crime cases, or just weird shit in general that you want me to look into, send an email to thatsinsane at gmail.com. And... Until then, I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. (laughs) I was like, you could say something.